Hello, Dennis. Hello, Jesse. Don't uh, talk. I have something to tell you. Okay. We were guests on two other podcasts. That's something I do, but maybe our listeners didn't know. One's called The Quizzical Papist. Yes. And uh, I won't tell you who won in a dramatic victory at the end of the Papist quiz. It was very dramatic. And the other one was The Catholic Man Show. So check us out on those two podcasts. And without further ado, more Sacrosanctum Concilium. The Chesimus Quintus paragraphs of Sacrosanctum Concilium. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. We are back and better than ever. Are you really that upset about what what Chris just or Dennis just called you? Who is getting tired of Vatican II? Not me. Not me. All right. Again, this is the disclaimer. If this podcast is boring, boring you, you got to email questions at liturgyguys.com, and I will forward all messages on to Chris's personal uh, email device. And if Vatican II is boring you, talk to your spiritual director and pray more. <laughs> mm-hmm. And actively participate This is more. what the Holy Spirit wants everyone to know about stuff. It's what Chris wants everybody to know. But anyway. All so right. we're here at chapter 21, or paragraph 21 paragraph. in chapter 3. It's called The Reform of the Sacred How many chapters Liturgy. are there versus paragraphs? There's 130 paragraphs. I okay. don't know how many chapters that is. But it's a lot, like 20-something chapters, right? 30 chapters maybe? No, no. No, 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 no. no. So when or ten chapters, eight chapters, so twelve when, chapters, twelve chapters. I, that's what I said. So when Agnes's school tells me that uh, she's got to start reading chapter books, this is not what they mean. Well, that should start her on this now. <laughs> All right, I'm telling you. All right, you can make like you know how to make the kids the like the lift the flat books and yeah, you can open it up books? and there's yeah. John the twenty third. Oh, Isaac's like really a, a into those right child's now. Child's version, of, version of uh, actually that would be cool. Children. A kid version of. Parents Sacred could read it to their kids. Well, and let's tell Kevin. It could be called can This Sacred it. Council. Hey, co- I copyright that right now. <laughs> so. Patent pending. Patent pending. Yeah. All right. The reform of the Sacred Liturgy. So we just laid out all these principles of the Sacred Liturgy. And now we're getting into it. Yes. Well, all how right. do you actually do it? And so they want the Christian people to derive an abundance of graces from the Sacred Liturgy. That's always the concern, right? All these complicated words... But what are they saying? We want God glorified and people sanctified. It needs to be the most efficacious it can be. Very effective, yes. How do we get the most graces out of the thing? Well, sometimes we have to make people ready to receive them. Sometimes we might adapt the liturgy to their needs. And so this is talking about how this will actually happen. I've got a podcast idea along those lines if we ever let you me do? get to it. But I think that's uh, <clears throat> really well said. Patent pending the- for, your pre- for your podcast idea. Yeah, I'm already okay. going to say it. So you're right. So on the one hand, uh, you've got to work with the people to get them prepared to receive the graces. On the other hand, there's things you can do and can't do uh, to the liturgical rite to make it more accessible for the people to enter into. That's where most liturgical abuses happen, usually when somebody thinks they're making it accessible. But often, sorry, that was my phone, but often they're not making it accessible. Yeah. Yeah. And even the... the I. Th- I think I see this in the history of the liturgical movement too. The the earlier, well, you know that there's this. Uh, we read it a lot at the LI. Um, what is the liturgical movement? And it says, well, what moves in the liturgical movement? 
It implies a movement, but what is it that's moving? We move toward the liturgy. Yes. So that's the early 20th century liturgical movement was mostly interested on that firsthand, changing the people, getting them to move into the mystery made present in the liturgy. From the bowels of the world to the face of God. It's like a double double meaning type of deal. Well, it's about to be a double meaning. Only later, I think, I would say in the 50s, you know, Pius XII, you see some of this, and then with the council, this other dimension entered in what we can also move the liturgy to have in certain ways but not in others to meet the people and so there is a double movement the people are going to move and the liturgy is going to move as well hopefully they meet in the middle yeah so in the you know you read the first line from number 21 but along those lines then what we just said is the liturgy is made up of immutable elements divinely instituted and of elements subject to change right so that means unchangeable yeah (laughs) Just, you can't, you just can't, like Chris's underwear. You can't, <laughs> you can't change anything you want, right? So some things yes, some things no. Uh, these latter, those parts that you can change, not only may but ought to be changed with the passage of time if they have suffered from any intrusion of anything out of harmony with the inner nature of the liturgy or have become unsuited to it. Those are your accretions, Jesse, or distortions of the liturgy. So things get added or changed or whatever, not for the better. So how did all that stuff happen? <laughs> it says... How did I these mean, accretions come about? Yeah. Well, I mean, how, how did... How were all these misinterpretations coming about? Well, it's not necessarily misinterpretations. There's often a time and a place and a historical circumstance where something is necessary or perceived as good. So one of the claims, and, you know, the revisionist liturgical scholars might... Uh, take objection with this. But one of the major claims at the time was the low mass was basically the private mass of the priest celebrating mass alone, right? So we had rubrics that said he reads the gospel to himself because there's nobody there, right? He doesn't turn around and say the Lord be with you to nobody. So people would do that mass, priests would do that mass for the public. And then those nonetheless well, became- Well, he would start privately. Right. And that and became the rubric. Himself, there's nobody say, well. Yeah. So he'd, be, he'd say mass quietly because there might be an altar on either side of you and a bunch of people are saying private masses or masses with only one server. No such thing as a private mass technically. But you can't be speaking in a big loud voice if some- guy next to you is saying mass too. And the guy on the other side is saying, saying mass too. So if this were a monastic community, every priest had to say mass every day, you had to kind of get through this quickly because there are people waiting to use the altars and you might have an altar server. And that's the only one that answered, even though it said priest and people, nonetheless, it was only the server that was answering for the people. But then that becomes the rubric because it's happened for a long time. And then the book says the server responds And then that becomes the way it's done even when there's people there. So the priest reads the gospel to himself, even though there's a thousand people in the church behind him. And then someone wakes up eventually and says, hey, even though we've been doing that for 800 years, isn't that contrary to the nature of the liturgy? But then they become the problem. See, this is how prophets are. Prophets stick their head up to get chopped off. (laughs) And so people say, you heretic, radical, you ought to change the mass. Who are you to change the mass? And that's why it takes historical uh, research and what we call even historical critical research to find out what is the true nature of the liturgy. Is there is it in the nature of the liturgy for the gospel not to be proclaimed to people in the language they understand? Or is it in the nature of the language of the liturgy to proclaim Otherwise, it? when are they going to hear it? Well, right, exactly. So that's the kind of thing where people say they want to restore things if anything has suffered out of harmony with the inner nature of the liturgy or become unsuited to it. So yeah. that's it. And this is... <laughs> We still have this problem today, right? <laughs> we have things introduced into the liturgy today 
I know you can't say this, but I can. Can you say polka mass? I can say it. I, I've never. I don't know what it is. I mean, I've heard about it, but I've never seen. This is it. where the umpapa band comes in because people like the polka mass. So far outside the nature of the liturgy to have a polka mass, right? To let the whole mass be subservient to this kind of beer hall style of music. But nonetheless, people are attached to it in places like I've heard of Wisconsin. Jazz mass or clown mass. But that's all the same well, problem. But again, you don't, I would submit, you don't, these are still kind of exceptional and rare. I, I, I still think on often on a reg, regular Sunday mass. A reggae, can, reggae you can, mass? You can see things in there that are that are added and are not in harmony with the inner nature of the liturgy, which the document has been trying to teach us what that inner nature like is. carrying big signs down the aisle of the church when talking about social justice? Well, mm-hmm. again, the, the inner nature of the liturgy is joining yourself to the paschal sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Anything that doesn't facilitate that is out of harmony with that nature. Right. So, so this, I mean, you could get an extreme example or you can get a regular example. So, yeah, that's why I think... Um, you know, anybody involved in liturgical decisions, but even people involved in mere liturgical they should have participation. A, de- a degree from the liturgical institute? Well, they should be able to articulate, this is the inner nature of the liturgy. And everything I say, do, wear, has to be in... Here, look at, yeah, needs smell, to be in taste. communication with that. Right. So... This restoration of the liturgy, they're saying, this is still in 21, the text and rites should be drawn up so they express more clearly the holy things which they signify. So if the great mural has been under the whitewash all these years, then the idea is take off the whitewash. That's a strange accretion or this yellowed varnish so that the holy things can be more knowable, the signified more effectively. But also vulnerable. Well, that's true. But the Christian people have to be enabled to understand them. So you don't just kind of you know, capture, you know, hit a chunk off the Sistine Chapel and say, here, take this home so you can, you know, show it to your friends and understand it. Then it'd be the 15th Chapel. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Deafening silence. Come on. He'll he'll add a laugh track later. So therefore, it establishes all these norms. And now What is the first norm, Dennis? What is the first norm, do you think? Regulation of the sacred liturgy depends solely on the authority of Chris Karsten's Yes, your Taas liturgy director has supreme authority. Wait, is that real life? Dennis McNamara. No. No. And as further laws may determine, Jesse Weiler and friends. No, I don't want that responsibility. Says regulation is on the authority of the church. First, the apostolic see, then possibly the bishops, bishops' conferences, and then this line. No other person, even if he be a priest, may add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on his own authority. Bam! Practical norm number one. Who's that guy who throws the spices on the food? Oh, Emeril Agassi. And then you did the thing where he was throwing... Kick it up. Kick throwing, it up a notch. Throwing the uh, incense on the, on the mm-hmm. charcoal. This is it. We just threw liturgical stuff right on there. Nobody, even a priest, can add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on his own authority. I've always, mm-hmm. I've always found that mm-hmm. very remarkable. And right? yet... <laughs> the, the spirit of Vatican II, you know, is the spirit of uh, um, change, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, determining how to adapt and to. This is another one of my copyrighted trademark products is I want to sell little packs of cards that have quotes from Vatican II that you can give to the priest at the end of mass <laughs> that will describe the, the liturgical abuse they just committed. So if they start changing everything around, you just have this in your wallet, right? And it says, Sacrosanum Controllium 22. 
No one person, even a priest, can change anything on the liturgy. Oh, why did you give me this? Oh, I just thought you might want to read Vatican II. Father. They'd be just paternal correction cards or what? I mean, think about them. When you collect those <laughs> from enough people, man, you should, maybe you'd take a moment and think, why is everybody telling me this? Hmm. Hmm. But, so that means nothing can ever change, Chris? Ever? Ever, ever? Oh, ever. yeah, it can. Well, it said before, not only should some of these mutable parts change, but they ought to be changed. But what they're saying is, it's not the province, if province is the word I want, of the priest or the liturgy committee or the diocesan liturgy director to do it. These changes to the official books come about through established uh, means. There's, there are certain options that a priest has in the Missal. There are certain areas that a bishop has and others that he doesn't to legislate mm-hmm. uh, in his own diocese. There's a place for bishops' conferences to fill in gaps where the Code of Canon Law, for example, or the various instructions say it is up to the local bishops' conferences to, to decide in this area. There are places where the Holy See and the various congregations uh, are meant to uh, to make these changes, but outside of those channels, there's no option. Though that's how things should get changed. Vatican II said, "Don't yeah, change sorry to go all Vatican anything, II on you, even <laughs> on, the, on your own authority, right?" And they're talking about here the progress of reform. So what do they do? Twenty three says, "Sound tradition be retained." Okay, so all the good stuff is retained. The baby is retained, but the bathwater can go because it's open to legitimate progress. If you're drowning in dirty bathwater. Just because you've always been drowning in dirty bathwater, that's not good, right? Keep the baby, get rid of the bathwater. Drown in clean water, okay? But you have to know what's bathwater and what's baby, right? So how do you do that? Well, you do. You investigate. You investigate along theological grounds, historical grounds, pastoral grounds. That's the language here. Coffee grounds. Number no, coffee grounds, grounds is not uh, in there. Uh, yeah, so you don't want. I like this term, legitimate progress. Yes. We do not want illegitimate. Progress. Legit. Lex. Le- yeah, lawful. Yeah, lawful according progress. to the law. But look at the last sentence in that paragraph. Yeah, this is a, this is a hotly debated sentence uh, even to our day. Finally, whoosh, there must be no innovations unless the good of the church genuinely and certainly requires them. And care must be taken that any new forms adopted should in some way grow organically from forms already existing. Means don't. I mean, seriously, don't. Well, it means if you do, it's only because it's truly necessary because you have to protect the baby. You can't just say, well, you know, I don't like this baby, so let's get a different baby. No, the baby is your baby. Sticking with the baby in the bathwater. Hanging with the baby theme. All right. right, But again, this this is where people of, of... goodwill and faith can really, you know, debate these questions. You know, was it necessary that a certain element of, you know, what we'd call the extraordinary form be left out? You know, I I hear reasonable people talk about, you know, the uh, sexagesima Sundays and septuagesima Sundays and, you know, certain elements of the calendar. Was, was Was that a good thing? To, to lose everything right up until Ash Wednesday starts? Well, I, you know, I think you could have a um, reasonable discussion about that. So, or if you uh, yeah. add new things, you don't just make up stuff from the moment, but it grows organically from something that already From a existed. genuine spiritual need right. that will help people, will facilitate their cooperation in the Paschal sacrifice of Jesus. That's the ultimate litmus. Does it do that? The ultimate litmus, band name right mm-hmm. there? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Ultimate litmus. Okay. 
And now the question is, when something new is added, how organic is it? Is it organic enough? Is it an invention? So, you know, Alcuin Reed wrote this book called The Organic Development of the Liturgy. It's a big fat book on liturgical history and the liturgical movement. And he looks at all the times where they talk about organic process and then things that were not organic, that just were invented by the concilium or came, seemed to come from nowhere. I mean, was there a Eucharistic prayer two, three, and four before the council that organically grew from somewhere? Well, it wasn't in the missile, right? There's certainly, they would answer that question very differently in 1963 than they would uh, 2018. So they would say there were prayers and fragments of prayers that we knew that we could organically develop a, another Eucharistic prayer, two or three and four. And that, although it didn't come from the missile, it didn't come from nowhere. So is that organic enough to add something that was never there, even though it comes from another source? So, you know, there's, there's a guy named Michael Davies who's quite long dead now, but he wrote a little booklet called The Time Bombs of Vatican II. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, no. He was sort of a cranky, smart, but cranky, very deeply disturbed by Vatican II. And he said phrases like this were time bombs in Vatican II because nobody knew what they meant. So therefore they were just in there like uh, organically developed. What does that mean? And then it could just... And then they'd kind of get away. Could blow up in your face yeah. uh, later. Uh, you know, older documents, older councils would say, believe this or else if you don't anathema sit, you're cut off. All these words, words, words that so many have these different interpretations, possibilities for interpretation, set us up for the problem we have now. What's the in- hermeneutic? What does it mean? How organic is organic enough? And so, by definition, documents like this have to be broad because they can't hyper-legislate. But if they don't hyper-legislate, then how do you know what to do at the other end? Yeah. Well, I, I think that's part of the point. These are very general norms for reform and restoration. They are not specific, detailed ways to go about it. And they weren't intended to be that either. There's other subsequent legislation that would do a lot of that. Uh, and when you see but, 25 there, the liturgical books are to be revised as soon as possible. Yeah. Is that so a good what idea? does that mean? Hurry up and do a slapdash, half-ash job. <laughs> half-ash Wednesday? <laughs> half-ash Wednesday kind of job. Or do you do it in the best way? So it, I, I assume nobody would have thought, let's do a crummy job at revising the liturgical books. On the other hand, if you actually read the text, it says as soon as possible. Well, that next slide too, experts are to be employed uh, on the task I heard a line um, not too long ago from Pope Benedict who said if if the reform were left uh, not entirely to experts, uh, but to, <laughs> he didn't say like normal people. people. <laughs> yeah, but something Normies, like that. Yeah. The reform would have looked very different. And so, yeah, I mean, do you get that sense that some of these reforms weren't certainly weren't grassroots, ground up um, type of changes, but they were by by the experts. I think experts are the worst. Unless people consult me, and then I think experts are the best. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that brings us through 25. I think it's a good place to stop. Okay, let's go back and just say we can't leave out 24. Oh. Sacred scriptures of the ah. greatest importance in the celebration of the liturgy. Now, is that true? It's, huh? Is that true? How about thought, the Eucharist? I thought Eucharist was part of It doesn't excellence. say it's the most important. It says greatest. It says of, of the, the greatest gr- importance, oh, okay. which I think means something different. So, um, yeah, a great. Uh, this, this is uh, along with the biblical revival. Sacrosanct Patrillium has a um, real emphasis on the place of the sacred scriptures in all of the liturgical reforms and restoration. So, but yes, that having been said, Dennis, we're through twenty-five. Mm-hmm. We made some progress on this one. Twenty-five. Absolutely. Okay. Some liturgical progress. You're so progressive. <laughs> I know. We had know. some movements here. I yeah. Say. Uh, true liturgical movement. 
Chris, yes. do you want to answer allergy question? I do. How come you always <laughs> ask Chris? Yeah, that why question? do you ask me? Because you always know the answers. Because he's and the I don't. director of office for worship Ooh, for lacrosse. Yeah, and the he, secret worship office. Everything. Yeah, he gets all these all the time. Like that's all. That's the only job you do, right? Is just answer allergy. Answer question? a lot of questions. All right. All right. Question time. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here. But you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Do we have a question, Jesse? Yes, this week we have a question from Rose. And I think it's pretty appropriate. Rose. Rose is she a, just a plant? <laughs> no. Okay. This question is a plant. <laughs> She's a real questioner. All right. Rose says, hi, Liturgy guys. Love your show. Thank you so much for all that you do. Hi, Rose. Hi, Rose. You're welcome. Chris. Yes. Say hi, Rose. Hey, Dennis. Oh, hi, Rose. <laughs> Rose says, my question revolves around plants and trees in the sanctuary. Are you allowed to use plants or trees to decorate the sanctuary? If not, where can you put plants and trees? Is it artificial or live ones? Well, she didn't specify. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Because like, you have Christmas trees and Easter lilies and that. I mean, I've seen that. I, I assume that's what she's talking about. Well, from the best Chris and I have put together our connected liturgical brain, there isn't any actual never, cannot, must not about plants and flowers in the sanctuary. I feel like this is going to have a but. Well. Or a however. However, <laughs> Built of Living Stones number 129 suggests that the use of living flowers and plants rather than artificial ones it says, quote, serves as a reminder of the gift of life God has given to the human community. So I think there are some older legislation. There is some older legislation that forbade artificial flowers, um, but they don't make those kinds of rules anymore. But the question about plants and trees, per, this is personally, I don't like trees, plants, like house plants in a sanctuary, really ever. Like a fern or a... a fern or those peace lilies or something like that. Flowers are a different thing. Either living flowers or cut flowers. Um, you know, Easter flowers come in for a couple of weeks during the Easter season. But houseplants, to me, always have a domestic character. They, they could be in a mall. They could be in the doctor's office. They could be whenever. There's something about the flower being kind of the crown or the gem or the precious offering of a plant that's different than flowers are arranged in you know, geometric patterns and that kind of thing. And they don't, when, you, when they start to decay, you take them away. Other, other than houseplants, which tend to get, you know, dwindle little by little, they never have enough light and water. So is it Illegal to have trees in the sanctuary? No. But you have to ask for the, the blessing of a Christmas tree. In a sanctuary of a church? Yeah. Uh, they, they can go in a sanctuary? Unlike the nativity? Yeah. It doesn't, okay. say, it doesn't say they can't. Does it, does it uh, stipulate whether it's real or artificial? Or Well, it would probably say, like Built of Living Stones, is that 
you know, the real and authentic is always to be, in the natural is to be preferred over the artificial and That's a fake. lot of sap. But when you start to ask this question a lot of about <laughs> plants, you know, in a lot of the pictures of the churches of the 80s, they would actually build little like soil containers in the sanctuary. So you'd see the altar in a chair and there'd be like a little built-in planter in the sanctuary itself. And there'd be a, like, a ficus tree and a couple of little plants at the bottom. And I don't know if it was trying to look you know, authentic or this, it was that kind of the equivalent of burlap, you know, what burlap is to silk. These little trees were to, you know, cut, some of, sometimes I've seen sanctuaries and it's just like an office plant and it's like, Oh, that'll look nice. Right. And people treat the sanctuary like they treat the corner of their house where there's nothing there. I'd prefer to think of the sanctuary as being adorned the way a bride would be adorned. Would you just say, okay, bride, here's a, Veils. Here's a couple of little potted plants to carry down the aisle. No, you take the flowers, the richest and the most precious things that a plant can offer, and you arrange them sacramentally, and you give them the sense that you've adorned the altar of the sanctuary with these things. I think Christmas trees are often used that way. They're an adornment to the sanctuary. But just to have a plant and a couple of pots and stick them there and leave them there for months at a time, I don't think is quite the nature of the festivity of the occasion. It's just kind of home decorating church style. Chris is squinting at me. Do you disagree? However, well, I don't know. I've heard you say before that, uh, you know, the temple was decorated with palm trees and things yes. like that. And but that's a different kind of thing. Okay. Because that would be How? in the mosaics on the walls or the, the paintings on the ceiling that are showing the eschatologically perfect Ooh, heavenly garden. burn. As opposed to the fallen world's tree. Generally speaking, you don't see biological forms as they exist in a zoo or in a botanical garden in a church. Whenever you see decoration, um, it's shown in its geometricized heavenly perfection. Even the flowers might fit into a you know a pentagon shape where they're very regular, much more regular than they would be in real life, and that's showing their heavenly condition. And that's what makes a thing from a mere facts of the earthly reality to the earthly reality brought to its glorified heavenly condition. So, is it outlawed to have trees and houseplants? No. I just think it never quite looks right by itself. All right. Well, but, but oh. again, I, no, 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 no. I'm not disagreeing. In this corner. No, no. Okay. I've, I, I, I think you're right, but in the end, it doesn't matter what I think or what your opinion is. What you're doing is applying, even if there's no specific answer, uh, you know, you can find it in the book, you're applying, you know, sound liturgical principles and thinking to something that's that's not clear. And so it's this is more than just, you know, Dennis's opinion about this. It's Dennis's opinion informed by liturgical theology. So I I'm just I'll I give think, you a thumbs up. Guys, sorry, I just think we have to agree to agree. So All right, let's agree to agree. All right, Rose, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Or D Mac D. Don't tweet him. You'll, you tweet won't get me. A response. How long are you going to keep saying that? Until Every I time. actually reestablish my account. Chris, I still think that's hilarious. And I'm going to keep saying it until I don't think it's funny anymore. So, oh, all right. Man. Thank you and God bless. God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.